Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to thank you for tuning into this week's sermon, which is from our current sermon series called Our Aim, as we look at the mission of Sacred City Church, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois at scmoline.com. Hear the word and promises of our Lord from Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, Mm. but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If we surveyed the Quad Cities, we just did one one question survey, go out on the street corners, walking downtown, going through neighborhoods and ask this one question, asking, do you want a better city? I'm not a betting man, but I would bet big money that you would get a, a resounding yes. Nearly everybody in our city desires for a better city, better neighbors, wiser government, prosperous businesses and institutions, beautiful spaces, and and everything in between. And this church, Sacred City, is committed to working to that end. It's, It's part of our mission. It's built in to what we're all about, our aim. And we've been spending the last six weeks in this sermon series unpacking our mission to make disciples plant churches and renew our city. It's what we've been committed to since the day we planted this church, and by God's grace, it'll be the mission that we're committed to until Jesus comes back. 
Now this, this piece of renewing the city, of improving our place, is actually a product of the first two things. We cannot actually renew our city if we're not making disciples and planting churches. And so our primary objective is this. It's, it's in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, to go to the nations, make disciples, teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. And as we do this work, as we disciple the nations, as disciples are being made, we're growing in our love for and our obedience to Jesus. What happens are these worshiping communities grow and multiply. In fact, this is what spills into the whole renewing the city piece. You may not realize it, but what we do here on Sunday mornings is an essential piece of renewing the city. Because what's going to change the city are not these grumpy, white-knuckled people going out there, well, I got a job to do to make God happy, but people who are filled with the joy of the Lord, the joy of their salvation. And here every Sunday we come in and the gospel is proclaimed over us. We are built up in love and in truth and sent back out with the benediction to go into the world. And as we see the gospel do its work among God's people, transforming us, this work of, well, first we're, we're justified, we're brought into a right relationship by the blood of Jesus Christ, but then we enter into this lifelong process of sanctification where God in us is transforming us as individuals and as a collective community from one degree of glory to the next. And as this takes place, the, the transformation that we see happening inside of the church seeps out into the city. It can't be contained within these walls. It can't be contained within our missional communities. It has to bubble out and spill over. And this is what city renewal looks like. Now, this, this piece of city renewal, the, the primary thing that's going on is that by the gospel, through the person and work of Jesus, God is putting us, Christians, into a bit better and far more glorious story than we could achieve for ourselves. See, we're all living into a kind of a story, and a lot of us, being in the kind of culture that we are, uh, this, this individualized culture, it's really driven by a personal pursuit of my own happiness. And what God does, by his grace, is he pulls us out of that tiny little narrative, and he puts us in this grand narrative that he's been telling since the beginning of time. Now, the story that God tells are not just, uh, that God tells is that right? That sounds weird that God tells. The stories that are being told through the scriptures are not merely for entertainment. In fact, they're meant to, to shape us as a people. They're meant to, to, to solidify our Christian identity and help us to make sense of the world. Now, every civilization that's been on the face of the earth has done this, has used stories to make sense of this world, to shape the kind of identities, whether it's, it's Greek mythology. My oldest son right now is studying Greek mythology, and, and, and he's been teaching me. I don't know a lot about it, but he's been teaching me about Theseus. And Theseus was this Athenian um, dude, a warrior man, that basically his story was meant to shape the imagination of all of the men in Athens, that they would become this, this warrior-type man who would love his country and fight for the good, right? The story was used there, whether it's Greek mythology, Norse mythology, or even in, in, the, in American ideology, there are stories that are being told, for example, like the American dream. That's a kind of narrative, that's a kind of story that's being told. 
Now, the thing about this is that God always tells better stories than what we can come up with. And that's what God has been doing through his scriptures. And the story arc of, of the story that he is telling follows this big flow of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. If you've been around a while at Sacred City, you're probably f- familiar with this narrative arc. Creation, God creates everything glorious and beautiful. In the beginning, God made everything, and it was magnificent. The Garden of Eden, beautiful. And, and, and the pinnacle of creation is man, created in the image of God in the Imago Dei, who would tend to the earth, tend to the garden, fill it, subdue it, and multiply. Now, God gives that command to, to Adam and Eve to do this, but by the time we get to Genesis 3, the story takes an undesirable turn when sin enters into the world. The, the serpent, who is Satan in the form of a, a, a snake, comes and tempts Adam and Eve. He said, did God really say to do this or not to do this? And Adam and Eve get duped and they fall. And when they go into sin, all of the creation around them, first, there's brokenness in relationship between them and God. Their own relationship between each other is fractured. Their relationship with creation takes this big hit. And all of creation is just groaning because it's not what it's meant to be. Now, that's, that's where the story sort of plummets. But through the story, God is making promises, even even at the very end of Genesis chapter three, when he says, listen, this is the kind of world that you'll have to occupy now. It's gonna be hard to to raise children, to give birth to children, women. It's gonna be hard for you. Men, it's gonna be hard to work. The ground will be cursed and you'll have to toil by the the sweat of your brow. This sort of futile um, existence in life. And, And God makes these promises little by little and provides more and more clarity that he would send somebody in the world to redeem it and to restore it and bring it back to how it was meant to be. Now, the story takes a great turn. Now, we've got prophets that are leading up, pointing to this person, Jesus, who would come and enter in the world. And Jesus, we've seen the gospel accounts, comes, puts on flesh. He's the God incarnate. And by his life and death and resurrection, Jesus redeems all who put their trust in him. By his blood, Jesus saves sinners. This is the gospel message. This is the turning point of the story. This is where redemption starts to to come underway. Now, Jesus' salvation that he brings to his people is so thorough that he doesn't just say, hey, I'm gonna save people and and fix up their souls. I'm actually going to, to fix all things. I'm going to redeem and restore all things. At the end of Revelation, Revelation 21, Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. His redemption is so thorough. His salvation is so thorough. Everything that comes underneath the blood of Jesus will be redeemed and restored to the intended glory that it was meant to have. Now, this is the trajectory. This is the story that Christians have. This is why we as Christians can have hope because it's not all just going down. By God's grace, we have hope that the resurrection is coming. The resurrection is not just coming, it's here and now. Now, some Christians tend to think that this this business of making all things new uh, when Jesus st- says that in Revelation 21, is this one lump sum scenario that, that everything's just gonna be really crappy for a little while. We just gotta hang on tight. And then at the end, when Jesus comes back, he's just, just like this giant sweeping overhaul of the world. And, and so what that means is that we're here and we're putting our trust in Jesus, waiting for that day, but we're, we're sort of twiddling our thumbs. We're just buying time until that last day. 
And the thing that drives this most often is, is a skepticism. A skepticism that when you look out at the world and you see the brokenness that's going on there, you, you're filled with the skepticism that, man, things can't really change. That, you know, this, this Jesus renewing all things stuff would be kind of nice, but I just don't see that happening. I, I don't seem too, too hopeful about that. Everything just seems so bad. And when this skepticism takes root in the heart of people, it, it leads us to hopelessness, and hopelessness leads us to slothfulness. And one of two things typically happens. Either we resign from working for the renewal of the city, for renewal of the world, and this looks like detaching from the world, right? I'm gonna just tuck away from the world and do my own little thing and let, let the world go to hell in a handbasket. Or we kind of keep our religious convictions close to our chest, make it a personal, private matter, and sort of just put our head down and go along with the world. We just try to blend in with what the world is doing. Now, last week, if you were here, we saw that in, in Matthew chapter five, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus rebukes both of those approaches to the world. That Christians are to be salt and light. That we as Christians, as God's people, are to push back darkness, that we are to preserve the dignity, the glory that God has put in creation. We are to add flavor through the gospel. And this slow and incremental work done in a local context is essentially city renewal. Now this is the task that God has put on our lap as Christians, and we are to give ourselves to this, knowing that Jesus will return, that Jesus will come again, and when he comes again, he will bring heaven with him, and heaven and earth will meet as one, and the whole cosmos will be renewed. Now, if, it's, if this is where we're headed towards, if this is the trajectory of, of our world, and we are called to be salt and light, the next question is then how do we live for city renewal as the salt of the earth? How, how, do, we, how do we live towards this end as the light of the world? Or to use the language of Matthew chapter five when it says the good works that will, will lead to people glorifying your father in heaven. What are those good works? Well, that's what we're gonna take time to look at today. We're digging into some of the, the practicalities. Now, this is a massive topic. When we talk about city renewal, this is a sort of a, a comprehensive thing. We're talking about social, religious, relational, physical, economic. All, it reaches everywhere because the gospel has implications for everything. Therefore, there's a lot to cover. It's impossible for me to cover it all, which makes me excited for the next sermon series that's coming up. We're, we're picking back up our study of Ezra and Nehemiah. Next week, we're jumping back into that storyline. The first part of the year, we were preaching through Ezra, and now we're jumping into Nehemiah. And this story is significant, an Old Testament story that's significant because it shows us comprehensive city renewal. So we're gonna dive into this theme over the next several months but as we look at Ezra and Nehemiah and just acknowledging the reality of those two books of the Bible, it means that this idea of city renewal is not a hip new development. We didn't come up with this as we're thinking of the mission of Sacred City Church. It's like, man, we gotta do something that nobody else has ever thought of and this is what popped into mind. City renewal is God's idea. 
We see this explicitly and implicitly throughout the Old and the New Testament. We see directives and manifestations of what it looks like to renew, to enhance a place. And one of the explicit places is where we're putting down our roots today in Jeremiah chapter 29. Now, interestingly, this this prophecy that we see um, is what instigates the story of Ezra and Nehemiah later on down the pike. There's an interesting connection here. But the summary of of this passage that, that I just want to blurt it out to you right away so we all get on the same page is this. Verse seven, if you've got a Bible, open it up with me. Otherwise, it's up here on the screen. This passage in a nutshell says this, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God tells his people to seek the welfare of the city. When you seek the welfare of the city, you will find your own welfare. Now, the context of this whole thing is important because here it says that in the, in the place that I've sent you as, into as exiles. Now, what's going on here? There, there's some story, there's some backstory that's going on that's going to shed important light here and give, give uh, some helpful insights to how we are to navigate. The context of this whole story is found in, in verse four when it says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent in exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So here is a story where God's people, after a long season of unfaithfulness, after a long season of failing to listen to the prophets that God has sent to keep them true to God's ways, God has sent a foreign country to invade the land and bring discipline and judgment for faithfulness. Faithlessness. And what happens here is, is the Babylonians move into the city of God, the city of David, this, the city that was supposed to be a dazzling, beautiful city that displays the glory of God and what God does among his people. But instead, it's been ransacked. And these people get hauled away into Babylon, a city that is very much set up against God. Babylon was a pagan city a city that had their own religion, their own idolatry. And in this, there's this natural hostility towards God where they don't want to hear what God has to say. But it's in this context where God gives his people a directive that they are to seek the welfare of the city, that they are to enhance their place. Now, what he's talking about here in other theological terms is promoting human flourishing. That as they're here, in this, they're, as they're here behind enemy lines, they are to seek human flourishing. They, they are to work toward life to the fullest, a, a glorious kind of life. Now, the big question here that looms after giving this directive is by whose standards? By, by whose standards do we define what welfare is and what welfare isn't? Is it defined by God or is it defined by man? Those are essentially your only two, two options. Now, the city of Babylon has a long history that goes back all the way back to Genesis chapter 11, right? It has a seed of Babylon is in the city of, of Babel that, that Cain founded after he was exiled. Now, the city of Babylon is very much built on man's terms. Not by God's standards, not by God's directives, but by man's. 
Instead of fulfilling the cultural mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden to fill the earth, to subdue it, to multiply, which God then gave to to Noah after the flood came and washed over the earth, instead of fulfilling, uh, filling the earth, subduing it, to, to, to extract the hidden glory of creation for God's glory, they instead seek to, to build a city for their own glory, a city that's about them, their own glory. And for a minute, it looked successful. They built what we know as the Tower of Babel. Right? It looked like they were thriving. The city was doing well. But the whole mantra behind this entire, this, this whole agenda was, let's show God how good we are. It's about me. It's not about God's glory. It's about the glory of man. And, and in this mentality, they have detached themselves from God, from God's agenda in the world, and they have given themselves to futility. And it was quite simple for God to frustrate their plans just with one fell swoop, changing their languages and scattering them abroad the earth. Futility. Now the same spirit, this man-centered spirit, is what we see going on in, in Babylon. Now, when God says to seek the welfare of the city. And if, if the welfare we're talking about is defined by man's terms, and, and these people just go along with the agenda of man, what they're doing is promoting a false welfare, an incomplete version of human flourishing. In fact, I would say that, it, that it's actually an inhumane way of living because it is detached from God, the source of life, the source of goodness, the source of beauty, and it leads to futility, though it might look successful for the moment, to simply improve and move the needle forward on what's already going on in the city is like arranging chairs on the Titanic. Ultimately, it's futile. It's going down. It will not stand. And what they do is they contribute to the subhuman existence that the city is bought into. And Jesus to that asked the question, what good is it to gain the world and lose your soul? We're going to seek the welfare. We need to use God's terms. We have to define welfare according to, to God. This is the key to seeking the city's welfare. In fact, the, the first thing that we go to is in verse 7. It says, pray to the Lord. It's a matter of seeking God. And you see this even more explicit as you go down into verse 11, where God says, for I know the plans that I have for you. So, so it's God's plans that he has for his people, not the plans that man comes up for himself. God has plans for you, plans for welfare, not for evil, which the heart of man is bent on evil. God is for a future and for hope. And then he says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. To seek the welfare of the city starts with seeking God. There is no shortcut to this. There's no way to seek the welfare of the city without first seeking God. And the promise of, is this in verse 14. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all of the nations and all of the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I've sent you into exile. To seek the welfare of the city begins with seeking God. Why? Because God is the source of all love, 
joy, life, goodness, righteousness, and beauty. There is no other place where those things find their origins. And if we want to see our city be marked by those traits, which I would argue is what it means to have a better city, we must first find them in God. We must go to God and seek them out. Now, I need to say this here. As we read Jeremiah 29, in fact, as we read any part of the Bible, we have to remember that the Bible is not written to us, but the Bible is written for us. So in other words, when Jeremiah is writing this, he's speaking to a specific people at a specific time in a specific locale. So we can't just take this and say, well, this is exactly a, a copy over from this. But here, we can see that there are principles for us, that there are, there are guiding principles in God's word, regardless of what text, what passage we're in, that shape and inform the Christian life. So though we are not literal exiles in Babylon, we, as Christians, are exiles in a spiritual sense. The city that we occupy shares the spirit of Babel. They're bent towards sin and rebellion against God, full of idolatry, and we are planted inside of this city. In other words, we're resident aliens. We live here, but we don't belong here. And Hebrews 13, 14 speaks to this. This world is not our home. That there is a, a city that is coming, a glorious city that we actually belong to and one day Jesus will bring us in there for all eternity. But for right here and right now, it is this specific locale that God has placed us in so that we would seek the city's welfare. Now, how do we do this? Verse five, shed some light on this. We start by seeking the wealth, well, actually praying for the city, seeking God is the first thing. But the next piece after this, or while we do this, is to invest in the city, to, to put down roots. And you see this in a very literal sense in verse five, when, when God tells his people, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. He's saying build, build structures, to dwell in, build gardens that are going to feed your bellies. Now, if we're building and planting, this implies that God's people need to have a long-term vision in mind. This whole renewing the city isn't something that happens in the twinkling of an eye. It's not something that's gonna happen like just a big boom and a spurt of it and boom, it's off up and to the right. This work of renewal is long work. It's incremental work. In fact, it's, it's basically, for the Christian, the, the, the work of sanctification is the same thing. This long and slow work of, of being transformed by God's grace to look more like Jesus. City renewal is basically that happening on a large scale. It's long and incremental work. And because of that, we need to have this long-term vision to get it through our heads that we're gonna be here for a while. In fact, that's one of the things that God tells his people here in this prophecy. You're gonna be around Babylon for 70 years. We have to think the long haul because city renewal takes multiple generations to see any 
significant movement. Now, that's why the next part of, of that, that follows putting down roots, it, it's in verse six, build your family. Look at this, verse six. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters into marriage that they would bear sons and daughters. So multiply there and do not decrease. So God, he's thinking generationally. He's like, you need to get married and then your kids need to get married and those grandbabies need to get married and you keep doing this and you fill, you grow, you multiply rather than just peeling back in the world. Now, that's one thing that our culture wants so badly for Christians is to just vanish off the face of the earth. Just sort of tuck away into the recesses of the culture, keep our mouths shut, keep our heads down, don't make any waves and just, you can do your thing as long as you don't disrupt us. But that's not God's vision. God's saying, grow, multiply, fill the earth. God wants his people to be fruitful and multiply. God wants us to marry and make babies. And as we make babies, God wants us to steward these glorious blessings that he's put in our hands in a way that begets more and more blessing through the generations. Or in other words, we must disciple our children to trust and obey Jesus. Now this right here is a, a huge, huge piece of the scriptures. The Old Testament, the New Testament put a massive emphasis on discipling and training our kids. One of the most Prominent passages is, is in Deuteronomy chapter six. This is, this is a passage that every good Jew would know. This would be ingrained in their head, in their heart, and it would be plastered all over the wall. Look at this. I'm gonna read it at length. It should be up here. God says this. Now this, this is the commandment, the statues and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, this is Moses speaking, that you may do them in the land of which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God and you and your sons and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you. There's promise in this, that you would multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Here's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is what discipleship is. An increasing love of the Lord with all of our heart, our head, our, our heart, our soul, our might. And these words that I commanded you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently. Not just nonchalantly, not just as this auxiliary, auxiliary piece, but teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit at your house and when you on the, walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then you move into verse 12. There's, there's a caution. Take care lest you forget. So do all this. This is necessary because the human tendency is to forget the glory and majesty and power and might of God. And so there's a warning. 
Don't abdicate this God-given responsibility. If you, have a, if you have a child, God has commissioned you to do this. Now, Deuteronomy 6 is not the only place where we see this. You can flip to Ephesians or Colossians, but Ephesians chapter 6 is, is another prominent place where we see this. this. Deuteronomy 6 is in the back of Paul's mind as he says this. He speaks to children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you. See, even in these commandments, there's promise of blessing that it will go well for you and that you would live long in the land. And again, there's a warning. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, a lot of people read this and say, like they interpret this as, don't be a jerk to your children, right? Don't make your kids mad. That's a misunderstanding of the text. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Rather, the word should be, do not provoke your children to wrath. Do not neglect your God-given parental duties to disciple your children in a way that they forsake God, forget God, and walk away from the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. But rather, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That, that word there in the Greek is padia. That's not a word that we use a lot here in this. Usually when padilla is like instruction, we think of like, I have facts that I want to transfer to you. But the Greek context of padilla, it means enculturation. I'm not just going to teach you facts and stats. I am going to embed